the reality is we need owners, we need investors, we need landlords, right? The reality is not everybody can own real estate. And we what we need is good good investors, like people that care about the communities and, and uh, people that want to see these communities thrive. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Abundant Journey podcast. We are super gra- glad you would join us today. As always, I'm your host, Nick James, with Nick Offenkamp. Nick, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm pick on you a little bit, though. Is your uh, you had your morning coffee yet? That, that was a little a little rougher than usual, man. You know, you think you think after 35 podcast episodes, I'd have uh, the intro figured out, but still learning how to fly, apparently. Hey, that's all right. I am doing very well. The sun is shining, at least for uh, another day. I think that uh, it's it's about to change on us, though. At least here in the Pacific Northwest. How are you? I'm good, man, and I'm super excited about our episode today. We have another amazing guest, as we've had so many up to this point. We got Tyson Cross here. He is a Northwest guy in our neck of the woods, a real estate investor, and he has been in the mobile home park space for years and years. And I love his story as he journeyed from the workforce and realized there's got to be a different way. And now he spends his time both as an investor, but also as a broker and helping other people reach their goals and freedom. So Tyson, thanks for joining us, man. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me, guys. Nick and Nick. I just realized that. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like to keep it simple around here, you know? Hey, easy to remember. I love it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tyson, I know Nick said that you're in the Pacific Northwest. Where exactly are you at? So right now I'm in Beaverton, Oregon, which is right on hometown of Nike. That's right. Yeah, we're not far from Nike. We, uh, yeah, we were in Portland up until a couple. Well, actually, I guess we moved in eighteen now. But yeah, Beaverton. So we're we're northwest, and uh, yeah, I think you nailed it. We might have our last sunny day today, which is kind of depressing. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although we've had a good run this summer, it's it's hard to complain yeah, sure. uh, the amount of sunshine that we've gotten. Um, in terms of uh, your investing, um, I mean, I know that that's something that we'll dive into quite a bit. But when it comes to where you're invested, where you have parks, you mostly focused in the Pacific Northwest, or are you kind of all over the nation? No, so we don't. Yeah, good question. I so the first park we bought, and I say we because I always say we, but uh, we, we had a partner on that and the first park was in Kansas City. So okay. we bought that back in 2017. And at the time we didn't have any other real estate. So that was really the first investment. And and there were a lot of doubts there. And like, what am I doing investing in Kansas, let alone <laughs> into a mobile home park? But that worked out well and now we we sold that park and so we own a couple parks here in the northwest uh oregon and washington so awesome and with uh the brokerage work that you're doing brokering deals is that also mostly focused in the northwest then yeah so uh we we had a team so kind of a little transition and and i'll kind of give you up to speed but we just yeah. left our previous firm, CPX. Prior to that, we were at uh, Marcus and Millichap. And, and over the course of the last four years, we grew a team of five to, to really focus on mobile home parks and RV parks. 
and in doing that, our focus was mainly on the west coast. and so primarily, it was the northwest. but as we grew we expanded into the northern california market we also did several deals in idaho, montana, wyoming and then just some some scattered states here and there. but primarily, it's been a west coast focus and i've always been that way in brokerage. the first firm i worked for, hfo, based out of portland, multifamily firm i sold multifamily for five years and and the way that they had structured it was to be geographically focused and that really allows people to be hyper uh, experts if you will in their mm-hmm. certain markets just knowing everything that's going on and and uh, it's worked out really well and so i've tried to model that in terms of how we built out our team fast forward to now i'm at smi i just made the move over and it uh, we're going to try to continue that although i think we'll stay primarily focused in the Northwest, just because there's so much stuff out there, it's easy to get overwhelmed. And and then, you know, when you're scattered too thin, then it can be almost detrimental. So I I do believe in like hyper-focusing and kind of whatever you're doing. So, which is hard, by the way. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. uh, We could could share a lot of stories on that, but I, I love even even early on here as you're sharing, I mean, those are some lessons that a lot of new investors need to hear and to get hyper-focused. In fact, we we just recorded an episode and similar, he's a a self-storage guy and said the best advice he ever got was pick a niche and stick with it and and run with that. So 100%. You know, it's something I battle with every day. I mean, even just in my daily work, right? I think, I think, and I think most entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial people or people that have big ideas, like if you ever read like rocket fuel, right? There's like, these, you have a visionary and the integrator. I think you and I talked about that, Nick. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I'm a visionary. And when I, and when I, I, I sometimes can't like shut my, my thoughts off. And my wife will tell you it's like super annoying because there's always I'll, I'll come home and just like say some random thing. We should do this. Or we should do that. And she's like, dude, you need to like chill. Right. <laughs> but but I think that's the thing that a lot of people struggle with, especially when you're starting, you're getting started. And and especially nowadays, there's like so much stuff on the Internet. I mean, it, it's almost to the point where like I love Twitter, but I'm at the point now where I'm like, I might need to shut Twitter off because yeah. it's such a distraction. You know, for sure. And now I'm like reading about this wedding venue guy that's like building out these wedding venues and he's crushing it. And I'm like, I was like, I'm like, honey, we should I do that. Yeah. I'm yeah. Like, dude, we could totally do that. My wife has an event background. And I'm like, dude, you could, we could do that. Right. But, but that's yep. the problem. Right. And, and when you do that, if you don't get really good at one thing first and then look, I'm all for scaling. And, and I think, you know, to grow businesses, you have to scale, but you also have to like, establish that business and then delegate and bring somebody in that can replace you. I mean, that's what good business owners do. Um, but it takes time. Like you can't, you know, people want to skip steps and, um, there's just, it, there's no replacement for getting hyper-focused and, and really getting down into the weeds and being consistent in one thing for a, a certain period of time until that can allow you to do other things. So, to take that a step deeper, why do you think that is essential? Because there are so many people who have the ideas like you're talking about. And, you know, I've heard this a lot of times over the years as well. But 
in my own arrogance, I confess that I get into this mode of, well, I could probably juggle two, three, and then all of a sudden I'm looking up and I'm juggling 17 things. Why do you think it is so essential to really get into the weeds, master something before you move on to the next? Yeah, good question. I mean, I mean, the easy answer to that is like, we can only handle so much, like our, our capacity for information and, and understanding, right? I mean, we don't, we, we use such a limited amount of our brain. I mean, that's, that would be like the surface answer. But I think that, I think that doing things well requires a lot of time and effort and commitment. And I think in today's day and age, it's easy to want instant gratification. Um, you know, I practice delay gratification every day. Like there's things that I have that I, I, I think about, man, I'm just on this journey and it's been forever and I feel like I'm still climbing uphill, but I know I'm going to get there. And it's just like, you know, th that's just something I think about all the time. But I just think that today's day and age, it's really hard to do. And, you know, our kids and, you know, I think about my kids that I'm raising and with all the short form video and all this programming that yeah. we're doing that is that is really moving away from that. And I'm, you know, it makes me worried. Like, I'm like, man, how are we going to like really keep that, that drive in our young people? And, um, I think it just takes time. It just, it's just to, to be good at something. You have to commit to it. It's like, what's his, uh, what's that book? Um, I forget it's, it's outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. I don't think it's outliers. Oh, yeah. It's one of those books. I mean, it's like 10,000 hours. It's like that misnomer, that thing yep. that you hear. Right. And I don't know, that's just a number, but the, the, the point of that is that like to be really good at something, you know, it takes, it just takes a lot of effort. And so, um, yeah, I just, it's really hard with, with everything that we have today. No, it's an interesting thing to touch on. And actually, I mean, both Nick and I laughed because uh, it was very affirming what you said as far as uh, driving your wife crazy with bouncing around with different ideas. There have been uh, multiple times, even this week, where I think my wife has wanted to strangle me because I brought another idea forward. Right. And she is just like, please just pick <laughs> one and do that. Right. Do not talk to me about any of your other ideas um, until uh, you, you've proven yourself in just one of them, yeah. um, which, uh, you know, it, it hurts a little to hear, but that's, it's ultimately, uh, good, uh, good advice. Um, and, uh, so I, I'd love to get more into your story then of, all right, how, how did you find your niche? How did you uh, focus in, um, what did that look like the journey to get to, uh, was it mobile home parks at first for investing or, Anyway, however you want to shed light on how you picked what you were going to focus on in investing. Yeah. Love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because sometimes we just fall into the things that we're doing. Right. And I think there's a lot of that that happens in life. You know, nobody really knows exactly what they're going to love doing and what they're going to be really good at. You have to try a lot of things. And I think going back to what you were just talking about, like, there's a healthy balance to saying, hey, I want to try this or I want to do that or I want to do this or I want to do You have to do that, right? If you're going to be a business owner, an entrepreneur, and somebody who wants to like grow a business or experience like things, you have to fail. I mean, I failed mm -hmm. countless times. Like there's things that I did. I, I bought so many courses, right? Like you, you probably know that. Mm -hmm. Like people buy courses and, you know, half of yep. them I probably have done half of, right? Because you just like, 
it's just like part of what we do. But I think that um, you don't really know. And I think there's a lot of experiencing and um, experimenting too. And I would say that's the case in my own story. I mean, I used to, um, coming out of college, like I didn't know what I was going to do. Like I, my, I had a, uh, my, my dad was a teacher. My mom was a counselor. Never really had like any business background growing up. No, no education or, or um, sort of exposure to that. I never took a business class in college or high school. Maybe I took one in college, but I probably didn't pay attention to it. And so I didn't really know the world of business. I just thought like everybody did business because that was like what everybody did. So I'm like, I'm not going to yeah. do that. I really enjoyed um, humans, like psychology. I majored in uh, psychology. I was going to go get a PhD in like neuroscience. Like I love the brain and how it how it works and how it's different. Like everybody's brain is different. But then, you know, I chased my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and, and ended up working with um, kids with autism and just a lot more of that stuff that I had done through college. And uh, I coached through college, coached baseball. And so I just had a lot of like that sort of experience, a lot of people skills, and which has served me tremendously well. I think all of that sort of prepared me for working with investors and clients in real estate because there's a lot of, I won't say special ed people, but uh, you know, there's some interesting people in, in the world. So just like all of that happened and then I, I got exposed to business through a friend and long, long story short, I started to get into real estate and uh, read a book, ABC's Real Estate Investing by Kim McElroy. And that was like yeah. really the one pivotal moment for me because I realized there was more to sort of this world than just what I had known. And so I started researching that, kind of going down that path. Fast forward eight months after talking to a lot of people, I got a, 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 a start with um, a big firm, Cassidy Turley at the time, they, they got bought by Cushman Wakefield to me ultimately. And then I started in property management and then from there just like really started to grow into real estate. And when I was doing commercial property management, I saw brokers come through and I was like, man, I could do that. But the whole time I was like, I want to invest in real estate. And it all started from that book. And, and originally it was multifamily because that's what he did. That's that's his bread and butter was was syndicating multifamily. I didn't know what syndication was at the time. But I'm like, okay, he's buying these big apartment complexes. And I'm you know, it looks like he's raising money. Uh, I didn't know what that was, but I figured that that was a really cool strategy. And so that was the goal the entire time. And, and I started brokering multifamily with the specific intent to buy it. And I think, you know, a lot of brokers do that or or at least that was what I thought. Um, you know, the best way to really understand investing in multifamily was to go actually be in it every day. Right. And through that, I guess through that time, I got I got turned on to parks and I think I saw Frank and Dave's boot camp. You know, anybody who's in parks knows Frank and Dave. They're kind of like the, I don't know, they're like the godfathers of park investing, but they do a boot camp. And through that, and then I, I read like Trailer Cash, which is by, um, oh, I forget her name, Jamie, something. But uh, yeah, that was it. And then that's kind of how I got into it. Really quick story, but. I didn't know I was going to do that. I mean, my goal for investing first and foremost was to build, build a business, but build wealth, right? Like financial, we talk about financial freedom, but the reality is like, I wanted to 
build a better i wanted to like build a uh i don't say wealth but i did and that was it you know like i wanted to go out and experience what i read in abc's real estate investing and um you know it i think a lot of people go out and they have big goals to do that but don't see don't require they don't know how much work it really takes to do that and how slow it it is it's not fast like that's the other thing i mean this is a get this is a get rich slow business there's ways to to scale it and to speed it up you know by using other people's money or raising money um but there there's there's risks and there's other issues that go with that and so through the course of what we you know we've done and i have some a couple partners but we've decided to kind of stay away from the raise capital section at least for now because for us there's it just doesn't make sense and we'd rather grow slow and have the headaches that come with directly owning property versus directly owning property and managing other people's money and those are in my mind two different businesses um and so yeah that's kind of a real short recap but yeah I've got a couple of questions. So the uh, the idea of investing to build wealth. Um, one, I'm I'm curious of just how you define wealth. It's such a, a term. It means something a little bit different to everybody. And I guess even underneath the how you define wealth is the the why. Mm-hmm. You know what what drove you to wanting to invest to build wealth as opposed to. I mean, I imagine that you can make a pretty good living brokering multifamily deals. Uh, sounds like you're in a lot of different spaces where, uh, whether just as a nine to five W2, probably could have done really well for yourself, but decided to, to take a different path and actually become an investor. So curious, yeah, how you define wealth and uh, your why underneath that? Yeah, great questions. I mean, I'll start with the why first. And honestly, you know, that's such a thing now is like finding your why and um, sure. Simon Sinek has really like taken off with that. And then I even took his course on finding, like really trying to define your why. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like still something I'm, I'm trying to define because the, the easy whys are like, they're not really as deep as like, like what is the real thing that drives us? Right. And I don't even know yet, to be honest, I think yeah. I know, I mean, ultimately like being there for my kids and raising my kids the correct way and having my time to do what I want. Those are all the easy answers, right? Everybody wants that. But I think like ultimately as I've kind of dug into this more and and I've done that this year, actually, um, I've spent some time really trying to dig into that. What I've really kind of noticed a pattern in my life is that I really, really deep down um, find fulfillment from helping people on like a deep level. And so not just like, hey, I'm going to help you do this or I'm going to help you do that, but like really sacrificing my own time and benefit and gain to to see someone else succeed. And and I've been doing that. Like when I look back at different periods of my life in, in many different ways, like over the last six, seven years, there's a lot of examples of that. And so for me, creating wealth. Yeah, we're talking about like financial wealth, right? That's that's important. But for me, more money doesn't, it doesn't really satisfy, you know, and being a broker is, is incredibly lucrative and I've had really good years brokering. Um, but every year is the same for me. It's not, if I have a great year or a bad year, I don't, 
like I'm not changed. It doesn't make a difference to me. And, and I've realized over over the course of my career, this will be, I guess, 10 years in brokerage next year. So this is my ninth year. But I realize that it's not super fulfilling because it's very transactional, right? And yes, we create relationships and we're helping people succeed and grow their wealth. But where I've really, really found fulfillment is like in properties that we've been able to invest in and making differences in those communities and seeing the benefits that the people that live there get to reap from that. Um, that's been really fulfilling and like hearing stories and like going into homes and like sharing you know, just moments with these people and like, hey, you know what? We had a we had a park that we raised rents. This was an RV park that we sold because it was incredibly hard to manage, but it was a long-term RV park. And we went in, we raised rents, and we got we got some feedback from people that like they were like, hey, this is a lot. We can't afford this. And we're like, you know what? Let's go, let's go look at that again. Maybe we made a mistake. And we we looked at it and I was like, shoot, we probably raised these too high. Like, and we went back and we, we, we lowered the rents. Like I went to several places and I was like, Hey, we're going to lower the rents. That was a mistake. We didn't mean to do that. And that was like incredibly important, right? Those are the things that matter because the money, yes, the money matters. And when I talk about wealth, I, I, like my goal for financial wealth was to replace our income and excuse me, our expenses. And if you can replace your daily expenses for me, like, I don't, there's nothing else that really matters. Like I don't, we don't need a bunch of money. Like the money doesn't, isn't important. And so the wealth is a vehicle to then do the things that we want to do. Right. And so that's always been the goal. Replace the expenses, the, the money that it costs to live and then have a little buffer. Right. And once that's done, that, that is like, that's fulfilled. Now we can go create things that we want to do to help other people. And that's really, I think what I'm trying to do. Um, because I think that's ultimately the the most fulfilling thing. So, but it's a long journey, right? And we're still not there. And so we'll, we'll keep doing what we're doing. I'll, I'll keep doing what I'm doing right now. You know, and, and then I would add to like one of the projects that I've, I've started, we have four partners and we're, um, we bought a big chunk of land. Uh, I guess it's last year, 22. And, you know, several hundred acres and we've been developing that we're in the process of developing a 91 lot residential subdivision and that's like wow. super exciting right because we're like creating yeah. a home we're, we're potentially going to yeah. create homes and so over the course of this this project i've really started to look at development and and say man if we could create homes and specifically we're looking at trying to do affordable housing we want to do cottage style um, rentals, build to rent because it just doesn't, the sale doesn't make sense. And so we've really kind of, I've really honed in on that and, and I'm like super excited about it. And we're trying to figure out how to scale that and make that work on a, a bigger process. But something like that gets me really fired up, you know? And so, um, I don't know if I answered your questions, but yeah, no, it's really a, a, a rich response. I mean, I love the uh, amount of thought that you've given to the why and what drives you and the things that are shaken out of that with uh, the desire to help people. And it sounds like that gives a lot of direction then, too, to the kind of opportunities that you want to pursue, like this 91-lot subdivision. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 
that's super cool. I'm excited to, to hear how that project goes and takes off. Building affordable housing right now is uh, it's tough given the both the economic climate and um, just the like permitting costs alone. It's like whether you're building a million dollar home or a, a four hundred thousand dollar home the permitting costs are just about the same. And I've seen some interesting statistics where, um, I mean, that's like 30% of the build sometimes. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem. And specifically in Oregon and Washington, you know, we're, yeah. we're thousands of units behind where, where we need them to be in terms of yep. a, a normal market. Like if I think Oregon's a hundred and I think it's like 120,000 units uh, a deficit. And I think Washington's right there. It might even be higher. It might be 140, but that's, that's a big issue. Right. And then to right. your point, I mean, we're running the numbers on this stuff and we're just like, man, we can't, there's only a certain number of, uh, a, a certain threshold of rent that you have to hit if you're going to build this unit. And yeah. then it becomes a question of, is that affordable now? Like maybe it's not. Yeah. And that's why you see all this market rate product that's being built. That's, that's very expensive. And what's happening too, and we're talking to a lot of people, a lot of cities and municipalities and people say they're going in and building affordable housing and then they end up not, it's not affordable. And that's because right. it costs so much to build. And so, yeah. you know, there's there's some pretty big um, groups out there that are trying to solve this problem. Uh, the, the Middle Missing Housing Fund in Oregon, there's, there's a lot of people that are really passionate about this. And yeah. I don't know how it's going to be solved. I think, you know, you've got to have municipalities that work with developers. There's got to be ways that, you know, whether it's SDC costs are cut um, or, you know, development costs, to your point. I mean, it's crazy. So, but I think there's a way to do it. Um, and, yeah, but we need housing. Yeah, it's an exciting challenge to try and solve. I'm glad that you're uh, you're stepping into that space yeah yeah it's that'll be cool and it's crazy i mean coming like full circle and getting into that space and and, and that's the other thing too is like i look at brokerage sometimes and I, I i sort of you know i there's part of me that it's never really been fully um super stoked about brokerage only because to the there is a part of me that feels like it contributes to the problem in some regard um mm -hmm. and, and i'm i'm being completely vulnerable and honest with you guys but like you, uh, you know, there's two ways to look at that, right? Because it's like, hey, the more we sell, the more money we make, right? And it's this vicious cycle, right? And then if somebody buys it at that price, rents have to go up, right? Rents and repeat. Yeah. And you hear yeah. this all, I hear this all the time, like sellers are like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt the tenants, right? But I do want top dollar. And it's like, well, you understand that if we sell it for top dollar, the only way to make that make sense is if they raise rents on tenants. And, uh, and so I, in some ways I'm like, you know, this isn't necessarily what I want to be doing. Although, you know, you could also justify it. It's easy to justify that on, on the next breath by saying somebody's going to sell them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one reason like I've been, yeah. So probably shouldn't well, share too much. And Tyson, as you've been in that space for nearly 10 years now, you've seen that. I mean, let's go real talk here. What is either the antidote or what is 
what are some solutions that you've mulled around in your mind? You know, I, I think a lot of times there is that rap as investors, you know, it's we're going to bleed our tenants dry from every penny. And I think you're also hitting on a lot of tenants. They're in that situation for a reason, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why you and I connected early on with the vision behind Abundant Journey is, hey, how do we help people who are in these affordable housing, Section 8 housing, these people who really are just scraping by. And a lot of times, again, investors have this mentality of, you know, I'm going to use this as a tool to build my wealth and to build my empire or to build my generational wealth. How do you, how do I mean, what's the solution here? Yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. I mean, because the reality is we need owners, we need investors, we need landlords, right? The reality is, not everybody can own real estate, and we what we need is good good investors, like people that care about the communities, and and uh, people that want to see these communities thrive. And there's a lot of great investors. There's a lot of people that are in it for the right reasons. But I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I just you know I think that we need to build more housing. I think that's one thing, because you know yeah. a simple case of supply and demand. You know, simple economics, if there's more supply than than there is demand, then prices will go down. You know, it's just it's just simple. And, and I think there's been a lot of pushback to that in our state and in Washington. And when you add more regulation and government oversight, you're taking away from, you know, the private um, the private sector that wants to build housing. And if we can just make it easier for them to build housing. There's going to be a natural sort of like that will help. That will be a, a natural thing that causes prices to flatten out. We're seeing rents yeah. flatten out based on the market right now. But what's interesting is is vacancies at an all time low, too. And um, right. Yeah, I don't know what that means, to be honest. Like you look at the core in northwest Portland, downtown Portland, and it's it's a ghost town. And rents have come down in that market. But. You look at vacancy numbers across the state and across really the country, and I believe we're we're really at an all-time low. So I don't know what that means. It's hard to decipher that. It's interesting data, but yeah, I I, I don't know what the solution is other than the first thing I can think of is building. Um, you know, maybe to your point, I think we had talked about like finding resources for people that are in these these situations too. Like how do we help them climb out of certain circumstances that they're in? But we've, but we, but we're assuming that they want to, right? And so a lot of cases, maybe they don't want to. Um, but I think having resources and education and saying, Hey, like, here's some things we can do to improve the situation or, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good, it's a really good question that, that, uh, I think there's a lot behind that. So, Well, I, I think you're right. And I think it's to say you don't know the answer, I think, is to do a little injustice for yourself just because I think you started hitting on some of the answers. I, I think a different way to look at it is it's a multifaceted answer. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking about the municipality side. Yeah. You're talking about the builder side. And earlier you were talking about the side of needing good investors. And I think that's one thing we're passionate about. And I think you're talking about as well is 
there's good investors out there who really do care about bettering communities, making places safe, making places affordable, making, you know, understanding, yeah, the numbers do have to work, but we're not out to just get as much money as we can. But ultimately, how do we have that abundance mindset and how do we really make a community and a place better for everybody? And I think there's ways to do it. But with anything, you have to just lean in and lead with intentionality. And I think that's where the strategy comes. So maybe maybe not as much of, well, who knows what the answer is, as much as it's a complex issue and we can recognize that, but it's also something that there's going to be multiple answers to it and there's going to be multiple pieces of the pie. Yeah, that's a good point. And when I say I don't know, I probably shouldn't say that, right? I mean, I think there's there's multiple answers to your point. The problem is we're never going to have a perfect answer. We're never going to have a perfect solution. There's always going to be bad actors. There's always going to be people that are in it for the money specifically. Let's face it. I mean, this is a, this is a finance, this is a capitalistic business. Real estate investing is we're providing housing, but we're also, you know, people make money off of it. So it's a very delicate situation. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a multifaceted answer. I think, I think the, the main, the bottom line is, though, I think we need more product. We need more housing available. We need more affordable housing. We don't need to be building all these high-end apartment units. We just don't. You know, it's it's stupid. And uh, they're going to be, yeah, I just, and, and so, you know, we've I've, I've kind of championed this, too, is like we need more mobile home parks. But those are difficult to to make happen both from a financial perspective and also like a zoning and a sort of municipality, but also like bringing in a home. So there's just a lot of complex issues that, and and what always happens, it always, it it seems like everybody wants to always like have a say in that rather than just be like, yeah, go build it. Like, Hey, here's your project approved. Go build it. There always has to be like these, no, do this, or this, this won't work or this. It's like, there's too much of that. You know, it's like, It's not that complicated, man. As long as it's like within what what's been built in that area, or it's not like some you know crazy funky pink building, or like you know just something out there, we just need to be more of like, yes, that works. Go build it, right? Only common sense would uh, prevail, and just uh, trust that <laughs> builders, developers it's, are going to exercise them. It's yeah, insane, some man. Common sense. It's just, yeah, it just really yeah. is. Right. Being treated like toddlers. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you just uh, what is the state of mobile home parks uh, so far as you can see it? I mean, I know that obviously developing uh, new mobile uh, home parks is uh, next to impossible right now. Um, but do you still see quite a bit of opportunity for those that are looking to get into the space to be able to make uh, improvements to existing mobile home parks? Do you still see quite a bit of demand both from investors as well as for tenants? Um, or do you see that as something that's maybe losing some steam uh, from where it was at 10 years ago? Yeah. There's a lot, lot in there. Um, <laughs> let's let. I think you know. To answer the last piece, I think I don't think it's losing steam. I think it's from an investment standpoint, it's it's more popular than it than it's ever been. People realize how how solid of an investment it is, and by that I mean that it's just a. It's a. It's probably 
the need is never going away. It's like what we're talking about, right? It's still the most affordable housing yeah. there is. Um, and so there's always going to be that need. Um, yeah. You know, people that own these homes, they're invested in that home. So they're committed to living in that community. And so from that perspective, I've seen different from apartments to parks. There's much more, there's much more uh, care in a park because people, it's their home. Like they live there. They own it. Different than somebody renting an apartment unit. And so I've seen that. That is a big shift that I've seen between apartment investing and mobile home park investing. And, That's a good um, point. You know, we see a lot of owners that have owned parks for a long time and, and they, they know their tenants, right? I mean, it's a community. They, and so a lot, of, a lot of owners don't want to raise rents and they haven't because they know their community members and their residents. And so that's really great. Um, and so there are opportunities where there, there are parks that have been mismanaged or not cared for and ways to make the community better. And you know, a lot, a lot like one of the easy ones is if you have older homes in the community and a home, somebody you know moves out or they pass away, like easy way is to bring a new home into that community, right? We've done that in a park in Newport. We brought in five or six new homes, and it just makes a big difference. And those that's going to create longevity in that park, and ultimately will make that a better place to live. And so, yeah, I mean, there's still there's still opportunities. I think it's going to continue to be. Uh, popular it's been i think more people are in it now so it's created less of i guess there was opportunities and there were maybe a few years ago um but the need is still there like i said for good people to invest in these communities and that's really what it's about and then and then it just becomes you know do you have to what are those that criteria that an investor needs in order to make it make sense for them right because in order to buy something yeah. it needs to make sense um, and so that's where I think raising capital versus using your own capital, there, there's a difference there in terms of what you can afford to pay and what your return is. And, and, and so, um, but that's created more challenges for investors that are looking to get into the space because cap rates have compressed just like every other asset class. And they're probably not going to go up anytime soon. I mean, they have because of the debt market, but you know, they're, they're down to stay. I mean, it's, it's. It's with multifamily, so, but yeah, it's, I, I think, I think it's a great avenue for people to use that, you know, that don't have any other options. I think, I think it's a great, there's some great communities with great homes yeah. and it's a, a really good place for somebody to live. One, one of the things that you had shared when you and I got connected, really just in that and learning about homes and learning about the parks is that, you know, from an investment standpoint, sometimes I think people walking in just think all investments are created the same, but you talk about how parks are kind of the slow and steady backbone of a real estate investor's portfolio and how, you know, it's not, oftentimes it's not the same kind of value add as, hey, I'm going to find a, a dumpy multifamily apartment complex, dump a bunch of money into it, and then see the ability to double the returns but you talked a little bit more about how that's a steady eddy. Uh, parks are steady eddy, you know, slow incremental increases. And I think you've shared a little bit about that with in relationship to the, the tenants and things like that. So it gets me thinking, what are maybe some other lessons like that that you don't hear? You know, everybody can be flashy or the people who do parks. Hey, do parks. These are the greatest thing in the world. What are maybe some other lessons 
or some things that investors should know before they step into park ownership? Um, you mean like just in terms of getting into the asset class, like what versus what's out there, what, yeah. what the public knows kind of a thing? Yeah. I mean, I think I, like back to my point is that these are very different places than probably every other real estate investment being that these people own their home. Right. If you think about it, like somebody owns the home that's in this community. That's that's I mean, stop and think about that. Like they own the home. Right. And it's on land that you happen to rent to them. It's way different than anything else. Mm. You know, like everything else you own and they rent. This is the only thing where somebody owns something and then they're leasing the land from you. So like that in of itself is a very different way to look at this than any other real estate investment. Like that piece alone. And so I think you have to like recognize that right away because this is not a, this isn't like anything else. And so I think it starts with that, you know? And so I think if you came from that, the, from that place of realizing that you actually don't own the structure, you don't own the home, you just rent, you just own the land. Like that's it. Like they own their own home. So like maybe there's a little more, understanding to the situation right and then realizing like okay maybe i need to this needs to be treated differently um and so i think that would be the first thing i would say uh and and then that kind of probably dictates how you run the property and how you manage it and what, what you're doing and what your goal is um but i mean outside of that i think it's it's very similar to multifamily. you know i mean it's multi-housing is what it is and, and so I think that the things that really, if we're going to talk about nuance from, from parks, from everything else, besides what I just said is there's a lot of different like tenant landlord stuff that's specific to the state that you're in. And California is really, really specific, uh, even county by county, Oregon, Washington are really kind of writing new legislation every year that pertains specifically to manufactured housing. And I think it's for that reason. Right. That's the main reason, because people own these homes. It's a very different scenario. And that's why in Washington, they just passed 5198, which basically requires an owner of a park to notify their tenants of a pending sale before they do it. Right. It sort of gives the tenants the opportunity to band together and buy that community. Oregon has that in place. Other states have that in place. I think you're going to see more of that come down the you know, pipeline. They're trying to put some national legislation in, in terms of regulating the park space from an investment standpoint. Um, I think it's also another reason why people probably in the past didn't, you know, they would sell parks off market and so that they didn't have to notify the tenants because it's just a delicate situation. You know, it just really is. And I think that's it's kind of the biggest thing I would say people have to realize is that, um, you know, it's just very different. So. Right, because on the, I mean, there's the amazing thing of that with them owning their own homes, there probably is more of that pride of ownership, pride in the community. Yeah. Um, but as the the landlord who owns the rent, I mean, if you, like you were talking about the story of having raised rents on folks and it put an extra strain on them, there's a, an even greater burden than on the the home owner within the park because <laughs> what are they? 
what are they going to do? It's not like just changing from one apartment unit to another. Mm -hmm. Uh, they've got their home on that land and that's not an easy thing to either move or resell. Yeah. Or, uh, so I can see the, uh, the delicate relationship that y you have there, um, with the, the tenants. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, from like an investment standpoint, I mean, obviously the, the things that I think are probably the positives for an investor, if I had to say, Hey, why mobile home parks over apartments? I think you have people that own homes so that they're committed to staying there, right? So vacancy is yeah. almost zero. If you have a park, your turnover is really like nil. If somebody moves out, they're going to sell their home. Somebody new buys that home and there's no lapse in rent being paid to the owner, right? I mean, we've seen that yeah. like firsthand. So that's a huge benefit. Um, you're not fixing somebody's home because they own it. There's no there's yeah. no repair and maintenance costs. All your repair and maintenance is really, real, you know, kind of, specific to the infrastructure um you know the roads the the sewer lines the electric power utilities stuff like that so those are all benefits uh with with regard to bonus depreciation that we've had kind of it's in it's sunsetting now i think we have 80 percent this year and 60 percent next year but most of what you can depreciate in a park is accelerated depreciations it's under an accelerated schedule so that that gives you more bonus depreciation so we've i mean a lot of investors have taken advantage of that in the last couple of years for that reason. And um, yeah, I mean, those those would be the primary reasons that I think investing in parks is. And to Nick, I mean, your point about the backbone, I mean, I, I talk about owning apartments and parks because we own apartments too. And I think like, you know, you have the steady increases because people don't move out. So we're not, you're not going to see those big spikes and changing of market rents, right? If somebody moves out in an apartment, let's say their rent was, you know, a thousand bucks, but market rent was 1700. Well, now we can fix up the unit and raise that rent to the new tenant at 1700. So your, your swing is going to be a little bit different versus a steady increase in park over the years and just sort of kind of maintaining that, that, uh, that steady increase. So yeah, super, super solid for those reasons. Yeah, no, I love that. And for investors, I mean, we've got a lot of folks that uh, listeners on the show that are uh, in that sort of experimentation phase of, all right, with my entrepreneurial and investing dreams, they're trying on a lot of different outfits to see yeah. what what's going to fit. Um, when it comes to mobile home parks, it sounds to me like uh, right now for investors, uh, think of it less as a uh, like a, a cash flow asset. I mean, certainly you hope that you're at least breaking even, if not cash flowing a little bit, yeah. but more of a long term uh, equity uh, opportunity. Is that no? I mean, fair? everybody like wants you, cash flow. I think if you're going to buy, yeah. if you're going to invest in you know uh, investment property, the goal is to buy cash flowing assets. So it just then it becomes down to the math, right? And understanding like okay. what do I need to pay with the current debt market. Uh, in order for this to make sense for me and what kind of return am I hitting, you know, hopefully it's more yeah. than 5% because you can get that in the banks right now or, or you know, treasury bonds. So it, it's really just a math equation. But yeah, there's plenty of of um, opportunities that will cash flow that way. Or maybe there's some improvements, right? I mean, we have a park that we're selling that it's got, I think it's 51 spaces, but there's there's actually room to add probably eight more RV spaces right and bring some mm -hmm. rvs in and that you know so so some capex that's required for that but it's really just utility capex the space is already there the zoning permits it 
the density permits it. so like that that would be an example of a way to add more housing add cash flow. that's a win win right there so you're right absolutely and i think and and sorry i was gonna say one other thing you know traditionally what we saw maybe in the last five years when we would say value add parks i think what people are saying and the reason so many people jumped into the space was that because you know rents were so low in many cases across the country and when you have unregulated markets people took advantage of that and raised rents significantly where parks had not had their rents raised for a long time and that was really yeah. considered what you would say a value add. Um, sure. Not not in my mind. It's not really a value add. You're just you're just going in and extracting capital from these people. Um, mm-hmm. But now the and, and maybe it was an operational turnaround. You know, like so it wasn't being managed correctly. But I think now the value add would be going in and adding spaces or finding ways to increase the density or buying an existing park that has expansion capability, right? That to me is more of a value add. And uh, and that's hard, that's not easy. And and that's where I think you're gonna see the investor, the asset class is becoming more sophisticated for that reason, um, mm-hmm. so. Speaking of sophistication, that was kind of my next question is just with uh, most of these deals, are people buying them from uh, mom and pops that are operating one or two uh, mobile home parks? Does it seem like it is more institutions that are owning a large number of parks? And with that, then, you know, how are most people financing these right now? Is seller finance very common or some combination of SBA loan, other commercial loans? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly a lot of institutional capitals in it. I mean, we had a couple billion dollar portfolio sales over the last few years, which really sort of signified the in, the level of interest from, you know, institutional capital. And then COVID hitting sure. really solidified that even more because people realized that from an un, from a, a um, delinquency standpoint, parks were the lowest in terms of delinquency rates it, during that period of time. So that's big and i think that we're seeing still a lot of you know mom and pop sellers of assets that have been owned a long time there's still a lot of those out there uh and those are going to be you know purchased by professional and institutional owners we are seeing some you know professional owners sell right they got in and maybe three or four years ago and they completed a value add maybe they did some improvements and they're now selling and exiting those and so you have more of a retail buyer for that and so, yeah, that's going to continue. I think you're going to see more consolidation happening. Um, and uh, financing, you know, still financing is still good. It's gotten better for the asset class in general because banks understand the, the asset class now. But just like multifamily, I mean, the rates are causing problems and that they're adjusting the values. I mean, we've seen a, a cap rate increase of about 75 basis points over the last 18 months. And it's, it's always lagging, right? Because the data is, is behind. And so I know for a fact it's trending towards more of like, you know, 100 basis points or 1%. So maybe deals that were five and a half caps are probably six and a half caps now. Um, and so that's happening. And that's because the debt now is, you know, six and a quarter, six and a half. And even agency debt like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they're in that realm too. So, um, yeah. but yeah, more seller financing. I mean, I'm the, we're doing seller financing deals right now 
and we've done more of those and if we can do those we will because it gives some flexibility on the pricing and and then assumable debt you know some people are looking at assumable debt just like multifamily we're trying to find creative ways to do deals and uh so yeah well, that's good. Well, and, and, and maybe to, to pull out of the weeds here as we're talking, you know, numbers and stuff, I'm curious, you've been in, you've been on this journey for a while, both in brokerage and also in terms of investor yourself with folks just looking to get started, maybe feel like they've missed an opportunity. What, what advice would you give to folks and say that are, that, that they want to get in the game, they want to get rolling, but you know, they're saying, hey, all right, maybe I'll check out Parks. How would you advise them to get going? Um, man, I mean, I think kind of a cliched answer, but obviously you got to like, you know, know what you're getting into. Um, you know, obviously drive the drive some parks. Go look at it. Like go look at the bad ones. Go look at the good ones. Get kind of just feel it out, right? I mean, understanding the, the nuance of the asset class – Yes, you need to know like the numbers and how to evaluate a, a deal. What are you going to do from a turnaround perspective? I mean, not turnaround, but a management perspective, um, all that stuff. But I think it really comes down to like, what's your goal? Like, what are you trying to achieve? You know, and uh, kind of going back to like my why and trying to like, what are you really trying to do? Um, that's important, I think, because there's so many avenues you can take in, in real estate investing. And that's what's awesome about it. I think we're in a really interesting time uh, with real estate. I mean, the last 10 to 12 years have been like on fire for people. <laughs> and I think people that got in in this space, myself included, we haven't really seen like a down market. I didn't, I wasn't in real estate in 08. So I don't know what it's like to be in that, that market, but you know, I'm starting to feel it as a broker. So I think people need to be real about like what, like, Yes, real estate investing is a great thing, and there's a lot of hype about it. But you know, what what's the purpose? What's the goal? And so um, that's probably where I would start. And then I think I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years. You know, um, this may not be a good time to be getting into it. You know, maybe it's not because these aren't as passive as people say they are. That's one thing I think is a, is kind of a a myth is that you know parks are so passive from a real estate investment. They're really not. And uh, unless you have, you know, third party management and then you have somebody that like corresponds with them, there's a lot to know. And then there's a lot to consider too. So there's a lot of things that, that, uh, you know, you should think about before you get into it and just understand what you're getting into because, you know, just because it's, it's touted as something you can do and, and make money off. It's there's a lot of considerations, and I kind of feel like I'm being a Debbie Downer on this podcast, but <laughs> I'm just trying to like keep oh, it man. real. Um, I appreciate that because man, I hate the I just I, like I look at all the stuff out there and it just gets tiring, dude. Like it's just it's a, just a bunch of a lot of it's BS, you know? Yeah. And this is like yeah. when you're when you're investing and you're like you got people's homes and lives it's like a real deal so yeah right no and i i don't i don't take it as a downer at all i think honestly you've you've spoken from a place of experience that really combats against 
the illusion and the the quick pitch and the salesman on Twitter, as you say, or Instagram. Yeah. And I think you're, you're really bringing the reality of, one, this is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Two, this is people's lives we're talking about mm-hmm. and their homes. And this can be an incredible thing for you and your family, but you need to have your why. You need to have the real reasons behind it. And so I, I think – I think to be honest, Tyson, it's it's rather refreshing. Nick, were you yeah. going to add to that? that? Well, that's exactly the word I was going to say. That yeah, it's it's a refreshingly honest assessment, and I think that um, anyone who's serious about investing in this space should go into it with a degree of sobriety and seriousness, and that they'll go further because of that. So, yeah. unfortunately, Tyson, I don't think we're going to grow your TikTok channel uh, through the, uh, <laughs> the podcast interview here, but uh, I can do that TikTok a while. Ago. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's, uh, I mean, look, real estate investing is phenomenal. It, it's amazing. It's such a great business to be in, but you have to be in it for the right reasons. And that's why I go back to it and I say, Hey man, we need people that want to, that want to be in this. Yes, for the financial rewards, because that that is if it doesn't make sense financially, then why would we be doing it? Right. But secondly, like you have to do it because we want to like we want to add to the to the um, to the solution. Right. Not be more of the problem. And I think that's like the ultimate goal is like, how do we find people that want to add to to the solution, not to the problem? And, and that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. And, and that's what I think was so important in looking for the right people that are in, involved. And, and I'll be honest, like, even when I'm brokering, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, man, like, they might be adding the problem, but like, how do I find somebody that can add to the solution still like, and so that's it. I think I'm just kind of trying to hammer that home. And, and I think you guys are doing a good thing, man. I, I don't, I would love to like, I mean, be great to like hear what you're doing more on probably on the show, but I'm sure that, you know, you guys probably don't want to do that. But, um, yeah, I would say if anybody wants help to, or has questions for me, I'm I'm more than happy to help and share and do whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. What is the best spot for people to reach you, stay in touch, follow along with what you're doing? Seeing as the TikTok is now gone. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter, Tycross 81. And then I have, uh, I have a website. I probably I've been meaning to update it, um, but you can find me on LinkedIn too and message me there. Cool. I'll make sure to add uh, contact info for you in the the show notes so that our listeners can get in touch with you that way. Although I have to say, LinkedIn feels more like a brag fest lately, so I haven't been on there a lot either. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, LinkedIn has a kind of unique uh, social media <laughs> culture. <laughs> they all do, man. Yeah, Twitter's great though. I, I you know, I, I like. I think Twitter. Um, for anybody who's not on Twitter, and I told you, Nick, I think I told you this. There's some really engaging, smart, thoughtful people on there. Uh, there's also some non-engaging, non-smart, really <laughs> bad thinkers on there, just like anything else. But. I think there's conversations that are being had in the space that we're talking about right now. And, um, those are the, those are interesting conversations and it's a great way to connect with those people. It's a fascinating tool that I'm trying to use more. And I think like it's, it's the biggest, like, um, it's the word I'm looking for. It's the biggest networking tool there is, I think. 
Like if you're, yeah. if you're able to engage and have thoughtful conversations on there and there's people you can reach from all over the world that are doing cool stuff. Yeah. So it's the, the new town square. Yeah. And, uh, and I think being text based and that it hasn't been overrun by flashy media and short form video. Um, I think that really helps keep the conversation meaningful. Yeah, for sure. And the ability to use that uh, mute button. Uh, I, I'm pretty liberal yeah. in my uh, usage of the mute button. So if somebody's not adding value, oh what yeah, just, just... What does it do? Does it just like prevent them from just, showing a tweet on your timeline or something? On Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it kind of helps curate your uh, feed a little bit better to, to drown out some of the... Uh, either sensationalist stuff okay. or shock value tweets. So I've clicked the, uh, there's like when it says you're not interested in this post. Yeah. Is that different? That'll help you. I think so. I think that the mute actually, like you won't see anything from that account anymore. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's not exactly a block. So, you know, you're not, you're not, not sending a message, but just, uh, just mute. Some what's your, uh, what's your Twitter handle? Dude, I'm such a lurker on Twitter. <laughs> I uh, hardly ever post. I think it's just uh, at Nick Offenkamp. Okay. So uh, you can find me on there and the the random stuff that I've posted over the last Wait. couple of years. But uh, yeah, that's a, it's an area where I want to uh, engage a bit better. Okay. Yeah, it is at Nick Offenkamp. Sweet. And I don't know if Nick. Uh, I don't know if the, the real Nick James. Do you have a a, a Twitter? I'm sure I do, but you know, I'm not one for the social media stuff the, very well. The platform the formerly known as yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Thanks, guys. Good yeah. Job. No, this is Tyson. This, is, this has been great, man. Really appreciate the uh, the conversation, the honesty, the candidness, and then the wisdom too for for folks who want to make a difference. I think you challenged our listeners in the ways of looking at investing and, and making a difference. And then I, I also think you, you just educated folks on the asset class and what's your why. So this is, this has been a great discussion and listeners, of course, thank you for all, as always for following along with us. We are excited to continue to bring these conversations. If this was helpful for sure, share it with your friends, leave a review, give a like that helps us continue to promote the show. And as always, we will see you next time. Thanks for joining us.